On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Harrison Perkins about Catholicity and the Covenant of Works. So we cover all sorts of topics like who in the world is James Usher and what does he have to do with anything related to Catholicity and the Covenant of Works. Cover what in the world is the Covenant of Works. How did James Usher again think about it? How did others think about it? Was his understanding particularly novel? What do intellectualism and voluntarism have to do with the Covenant of Works? How does the Covenant of Works impact all sorts of different doctrines? And why should pastors take the time to read and think about people like James Usher, who they've never heard of? What about the Covenant of Works? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can just up Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome everyone to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and we are a podcast and really an online center that's devoted to serious thinking for a serious church. But when we say serious, sometimes people will hear serious and think of only one side of what we want to do. They think of the very serious in the, the nature of like rigorous thinking, like I'm alone in an ivory tower, thinking high-powered thoughts and like doing debates and different things. And we, and we want to be serious about those things. Uh, part of the reason that me and Brandon started this as a podcast however many years ago now was because we saw this huge gap in Baptist life of people who weren't serious thinkers. And we wanted to promote serious thinking about all sorts of ideas. But we want to do it with particular intellectual virtues in mind. Because we found that in our own context and the internet context, just America and the world, it seems, in general, uh, is in dire need of Christian virtues like charity. Uh, so we've really promoted things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism, trying to put them together. That confessional piece, I know all of our listeners aren't confessional. We think you will be one day, uh, but we want to be cheerful about it. We don't want to be total jerks because I think something that happens is, uh, especially in the internet, you go on Twitter or something like that, you find somebody who's confessional and they're just cranky. And we want to say, no, you don't have to be cranky. You can be cool with other people. You can be chill. You can have someone who disagrees fundamentally with your confessional status and not like uh, skewer them over it. You can actually be kind about it and say, you know what? That's okay. We can differ. Uh, we can still be friends and we can be curious about what each other think. So that was kind of how we started it and what we want to try to promote. I think the person we're talking to today is Dr. Harrison Perkins, the Rev. Dr. Harrison Perkins, and he said something earlier when we were just we were talking way too long before our interview, so that you know this is going to be good. Um, and he said something that I like. I'm going to steal from him, but I'm going to give him credit, uh, saying serious things with a smile. I'm like, that seems like exactly what we want to do with with the podcast and everything we do. So enough about me. Let's jump in. Harrison, tell me a little bit about yourself, where you at, where you're at now, what you're doing. And then we're going to be talking about your book on Catholicity and Covenant of Works. And I think if I remember right, this is part like this came forth from your dissertation. So maybe just give me the origin story of why did you focus on this? Sure. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's great to be here. And yeah, I, I one of the things I like to say to, to my Baptist friends is that the water is warm in Presbyterianism. And even if it's not, we don't use much of it. So uh, <laughs> any of your listeners are welcome to join us. But that, I, I'm right there with you. I do like to say serious things with a smile. It, it You know, we should have joy in the Lord, right? And that can be cheesy, but at the same time, it's real. Uh, anyway, um, 
I'm Harrison, so I am married to Sarah. We have one son, Scott, and that's kind of the family bit. Birmingham, Alabama is is sort of home. That's where most of my family is, so I love Southern barbecue uh, and things like that. Presently, so I've just taken up a call at Oakland Hills Community Church, which is just outside of Detroit, Michigan. Uh, so it's a congregation in the OPC, Orthodox Presbyterian Church, um, I have just come here from London, like the London uh, in England. Um, I was working at London City Presbyterian Church, which is a congregation of the, the Free Church of Scotland. Um, so I'm just still settling into this. I still get to do a little bit of lecturing uh, for uh, Edinburgh Seminary. So I, I've been doing that via Zoom for a while on their systematic side. I also do some uh I make some contributions to the online program for Westminster Seminary, Philadelphia, in their uh, church history modules, the ancient church and medieval church. So those are the kind of responsibilities I have. I'm enjoying being uh, back in the U.S. It's good to settle in to what is home, really, uh, and and get used to the new place. It's The people are wonderful here. They've welcomed us very, very well, uh, and and it's exciting to see what the Lord will do. Next, um, the origins of the book. Uh, so I was writing a... So the book is about James Usher's Doctrine of the Covenant of Works. And the reason why it's called Catholicity in the Covenant of Works is uh, Usher uh, used this doctrine a lot. He talked about it pretty frequently, uh, as, as we'll open up throughout the interview. And so that was one of the reasons in focusing on uh, his view of the of this covenant, uh, but then the Catholicity part is one of the major arguments I was making is that at least his version, and I think that it's uh, I think that it's more overt with Usher because he was a historian and was involved in, I mean, the Ignatian epistles, uh, the edition that we have of Ignatius's writings, uh, Usher essentially put that back into print from manuscripts. Uh, so he did a lot with the ancient church, essentially trying to refute the Roman Catholic uh, paradigm of tradition and saying, actually, the tradition is with the Protestants. Um, and he believed, at least, that Rome essentially fabricated most of the, the premises uh, to their understanding of, of the tradition. So the Catholicity aspect is that Usher uh, was essentially wrapping up several ecumenical theological premises into his understanding of the covenant of works. So several very ancient ideas that are common to the Christian tradition. And so small C Catholic, uh, but the covenant of works really is just a repackaging of some traditional ideas that Christians have always held, admittedly with a, a very heavily Protestant application Reformed Protestant application. So, uh, the the dissertation. Or, so yeah, it, the book is a an expansion and a revision of. There is material in there that wasn't in my thesis, um, and and reworked. So it's not quite the same, but uh, it grew out of that. I was doing a paper on James Usher in seminary and his doctrine of the covenant of works. That was a seventeen page paper, and essentially my 
advisor asked me, uh, my advisor, who, the, the guy who became my advisor at Queens University in Belfast, um, had written a little bit on Usher. And so I'd emailed him about source ideas and he asked if I'd be interested in turning it into a thesis. Uh, and the long story short was, um, I mean, essentially I said no a couple of times, but I thought I, I was, thought I was going to be a pastor, uh, at a church in San Diego. And when that didn't, uh, work out, um, the way I thought it would, uh, he asked again and, and I said, yes. And so went and, and wrote this thesis. It was an exciting thing. Usher has lots of manuscript sources. And so to go to Oxford, Cambridge, Trinity, Dublin, and dig through his personal papers and try to, exp- you know, open up what he thought about this, this doctrine was a, a fun thing to do. Well, so I got to say San Diego, now you're in Detroit, Birmingham, Alabama, London, you are truly all over the map. <laughs> as far as cultures Indeed. and everything goes yeah um, well that's my phd was in belfast so oh gosh uh, yeah that's right Did, who who was your supervisor his name is crawford gribben and okay. uh i w- i will just put it in a pitch for him he was an amazing supervisor uh he did excellent work i can't imagine anybody outperforming him as a as a doctoral supervisor for for guys who are interested Definitely look him up. He has remained supportive and helpful and did amazing work uh, helping me bring this together. I was wondering if that's who it was when you mentioned Queens. So I love Crawford here at the London Lyceum. We've had him on a couple of times. And if for nothing else, his accent is delightful. So absolutely, absolutely. go look up his episodes if you want. Listen to him. He's done also. People love, I mean, he did all that research on Doug Wilson and everything and published the book on like survival, something about Pacific Northwest and survival. I don't remember the name of the title. Survival and Resistance in the Pacific Northwest. There you go. So I think that's super fascinating. Um, It's ongoing and unfolding still. So I'm like, do you want to publish a second book um, on all that's going on there in, in Moscow? But that's not the subject of this topic. And I do want, before I forget, you're writing a book, Harrison, right now with Lexham Press on covenant theology. So very related to what we're going to be talking about today. So just make sure whenever that comes out, if you're listening to this and the book is available, you should check it out. Lexham Press is awesome. Um, I really like what they're doing as a publisher, um, making academic works affordable. So go check out his book there. We'll probably talk to Harrison about it whenever it comes out. So now, you mentioned James Usher. I imagine probably at least half of our listeners right now don't have any idea who James Usher is. So maybe give me a little bit of background. And I know you mentioned his role of thinking through tradition and everything. Is that why he's important? Are there other reasons why he's important? Those sort of questions. So most people who have heard of him have probably heard of him through uh, his dating of creation. So he is that James Usher who said creation happened the evening before October 23rd, 4004 BC. Sorry, I can't be more specific, right? Um, so he is that, but uh, that tends to be his claim to fame. I think the interesting thing about Usher is, uh, even on that point, is people assume wrongly that he was famous because of that chronology. Uh, And actually, I I think that's the reverse. I think his chronology became famous because he was a big deal uh, in the 17th century. Uh, 
that was kind of a gentleman's hobby. And, and that actually, to be fair, was, was part of a bigger project refuting that idea of tradition. It was tied into something much broader than just the age of, of the earth when he was doing that. Um, so Usher was uh, a professor at Trinity College in Dublin. He then became uh, eventually the Archbishop of Armagh, which means he, he held the highest uh, position in the Church of Ireland. Uh, still to this day, that's that's the the highest see in the in the established church in Ireland, and he was it. He actually has a a stained glass window in the Armagh Cathedral. If you ever visit uh, Northern Ireland and make it to Armagh, um, so he uh, he was a well known guy in his time. He did a lot with historical works. He did a lot collating manuscripts, even biblical manuscripts. Um, he he was probably one of the better known. Ancient church, uh, I don't know if you want to call them historians, historical theologians, probably better, because they, they all had a view to use uh, history, not that objectively. Um, and so he, he did a lot publishing historiography, uh, which was meant to defend the Protestant cause. Um, why should people care about Usher today? Um, you know, I think one, if you if you are an Anglican, uh, well, then Usher is actually probably your guy, <laughs> uh, or should be, um, because there's there's kind of a resurgence of conservative Anglicanism. I think that to some degree they are looking for their moorings. Uh, just coming from London, I mean that's my my sense, and this is is one of the heavy hitters that they they should appeal to. Um, on the other hand, if you're if you're not an Anglican, I think nonetheless, you know, one of the reasons that I did this book was because, at least in my own circles in Presbyterianism, uh, there is a growing fascination with Anglicanism. Um, and I think one of the things that we can take note of is that there, as Reformed thinking people, uh, there are Anglicans we should appreciate and those that we should appreciate less. <laughs> and, and I have a fear that actually the aesthetics uh, that people are picking up on come from the Anglicans that, uh, historically speaking, we should appreciate less. <laughs> and I think that Usher brings something to the table of when you look at uh, what he was doing theologically it's pretty down the line reformed. Like it's not, it's not, I mean, there are these distinct things about it, but there's nothing that shocking about most of the things he said. And the fact that it's pretty vanilla reformed, confessionally speaking, and has, uh, he, he had a, a significant emphasis on preaching. He was always preaching. Um, I think that that should stand out to us for reformed Anglicans well, the sacraments never replaced doctrinal preaching. Uh, they went hand in hand. And I think that's one of the things that we are in danger of perhaps losing as we recover a value for sacraments and liturgy. Uh, we might sacrifice uh, rigorous doctrine and solid preaching on the altar of those liturgical factors. And I, I think that Usher gives us a good reminder not to do that. Um, I also think that he's a, a fascinating example because he was so historically grounded. He he was reading uh, Lutherans 
of all people, right? Uh, he was reading Roman Catholic writers. Uh, he was reading people within his own tradition. I mean, Presbyterians, because uh, he was an Anglican, he was an Episcopal, and he was reading so Presbyterians and Episcopals, um, and and seemed to be happy to take what he could uh, benefit from from each of those kind of sources. And a good argument was a good argument, and truth was truth to Usher. And he was pretty happy to synthesize, uh, you know, the good stuff he could find from anywhere. And I think that, um, you know, all the same, he still had a, a charged polemic at times against those that he thought were enemies of the gospel. And so I think that his example of reading widely, uh, calmly digesting, and then being polemical where it fits is perhaps something we could learn from. That's good. So, and I, I want to talk about his thoughts on the covenant works, uh, especially because I think that's um, a good chunk, obviously, of the book, but also because I'm interested in it. Because uh, we have a lot of listeners who are, I think, uh, we probably have a good segment who might have questions about the covenant works or maybe not understand it. I mean, a good segment of them, don't get me wrong, definitely believe it. So I just want to, hear a little bit about what you think the covenant of works is to begin with explain that its context does usher have a unique view on it or is he pretty straight line traditional um was his understanding you know novel original in any sense so maybe we just start there covenant of works what is it usher what's his view is it is it different from others uh that sort of thing so the to start with yeah the kind of definitional issue um uh, the covenant of works is a doctrine that teaches that God made a covenant with Adam, the first man, before the fall, uh, and the condition of this covenant was perfect obedience. Um, and we can get into, in a moment, <laughs> obedience to what? Uh, but the reward that would have come to him was eschatological life of some... Now, Reformed theologians disagreed about the nature of that. We can take that up too, but... Um, so, God offered to Adam life on the basis of his obedience. And some people are thinking, that doesn't sound very Protestant. Well, um, if we were talking about salvation after the fall, that would be true. But we're talking about before the fall, when God made Adam very good. Uh, and he was upright in his nature. He, he had an integrity, an original righteousness uh, built into him, by which he could keep the law and honor God by doing it. And because of this covenant that God had made with him, uh, God offered him a reward, even though, you know, creatures owe obedience to God anyway. Um, so that's what it is. Uh, now, in terms of Usher's view of it, I think that it is, in in the mainstream, you know, if you look at it holistically, it's the reformed, you know, the you know the reformed in the 17th century pretty holistically uh, received this doctrine, believed it. Um, it's in our confessions. Actually, the Irish Articles, which Usher wrote, was the first uh, Protestant confession to include this doctrine uh, at the confessional level, which is interesting um, to me as a guy who studies Usher. Uh, but so, broadly speaking, yeah, it's pretty much what Reformed people believe. Now, there are unique inflections, I think, that we can parse out as we as we go along. 
Um, and, and so this was a, a doctrine that was becoming increasingly important in the Reformed tradition. I think that it was important because uh, it, it helped the Reformed express our understanding of nature, uh, human nature in particular. And so, you know, when you, when you come to the, the Catholicity part of my argument, and, and looking back at, at this, where they're trying to res- think about these issues of creation, you know, how God created humanity in his image. And one of the debates sort of rolling out of the medieval period was things like the Donum Superadditum, uh, which was the, the superadded gift. Original righteousness wasn't um, inherent in human nature, according to Rome. Um, and Protestants, uh, with more or less consistency along the way, uh, rejected it in principle and said that God created humanity upright. So there's lots of discussions going on today about uh, nature, about natural theology, uh, about uh, how we understand some of these wider issues like natural law and how to apply it. I think for the Reformed, uh, the Covenant of Works is a really critical piece of that puzzle um, that helps us explain um, the features of creation and God's relationship to us uh, from the beginning, why eschatology is a thing, um, even still today, why the new creation will be what it'll be. That's that's built into our understanding of the Covenant of Works, um, and but also why we can affirm that um, you know, there is this sort of natural knowledge of God, um, even even a way of doing natural theology, but at the same time, be quick on the other hand to say, and it has to be qualified by Scripture, because we're fallen. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think that the redemptive historical contours of creation, fall, redemption, too easily get wiped out, especially post-Bart, uh, and everything is redemption. There is no creation or fall, uh, and we essentially have drank too deeply from that goblet uh, that isn't, in my opinion, all that helpful. And and so we, th- this actually does make a contribution to a lot of the things we're discussing. I think it, if we talked about it more uh, and and had some more precision with it, we could get further down the road. Um, so I think that's one of the things why it matters. If, maybe you want to jump in before I just keep picking at some of those things that we said we could talk about later. But yeah, yeah so I did want to jump in on the Donum Super Adidum piece because I seem to can keep finding more Protestants today wanting to accept that or use it, and I find that very odd. So I'd love your opinion on, is this some, a category that Protestants should be accepting and using? Are there reasons to reject it? Because I find reasons to reject it. I mean, I remember the first time I understood it, I think probably reading Herman Bavink or somebody, and he pretty well convinced me that like I don't want to accept that position. So maybe you convince me otherwise, I don't know. But I'm very curious. Uh, I'm not going to try to convince you otherwise. So um, I guess just to to throw this little tidbit in, I've just signed a contract, uh, to write a book. The research is done. Um, I just need to do the writing, uh, essentially, uh, that is basically a book on the Donum Superadditum, <laughs> um, and, or at least 
understandings throughout the medieval period and into the Reformation of Adam's original righteousness. And then with an application to how this helps us formulate the covenant of works, um, how understanding the history of, of this idea helps us formulate the covenant of works. Um, so I'm, I'm really in the midst of, I need to correct a few things I said in the Usher book. I think they're basically on the right track, but just not nuanced and precise enough. Um, so I think it's still the same trajectory. Uh, I, I think it, the donum super additum is something that we should reject as Protestants. Uh, there are varying expressions of this in the medieval period. That's one of the things I missed in the Usher book. Uh, I think when you read somebody like Thomas Aquinas, for example, who's all their age uh, to discuss, um, one of the things that I think we can see on this is he said that essentially original righteousness is distinct uh, from our creation, but given at creation. So it is conceptually distinct, but not practically distinct. Now that actually is going to place later Reformed writers closer to Thomas than someone like Bonaventure. Now, a lot of this is wrapped up in uh, commentaries on Lombard sentences. So there's a particular place in the sentences where Lombard seems to, um, well, well, where he he does raise this issue of uh, grace at creation. Um, was there a period before it? That sort of thing. Uh, and later commentaries. So basically, Bonaventure, for example, uh, ventures, you know, there was this idea of pure nature before original righteousness. Uh, and and that view that, that developed more thoroughly in the Franciscan tradition and then was picked up. So like um, in his commentary on uh, Thomas's Summa, Thomas Cajetan, actually, or however you want to pronounce it, Cajetan, uh, if you want to like butcher it in American English, um, he essentially takes a Franciscan reading on Thomas, uh, and you can you can watch these things develop through um, through various Franciscans, through Occam, through Gabriel Beale, uh, and and into Robert Bellarmine, uh, and then you know my take is the Franciscan view that there was this time uh, before God gave the uh, the donum superadditum in a practical and conceptual sense, a time of pure nature, uh, this, this Franciscan understanding became the dominant Roman view. Um, and I think it still is today. And so when people want to say we should reject the Roman view of the donum superadditum, um, yes, I'm 100% with you. Uh, we should be more careful about who we think held that view and that gets kind of tedious. I get that, but if we're gonna if we're gonna talk about it a lot, we've got to start pushing further into the details. Um, I think our confessions are actually pretty clear. Now, I know that some people, uh, you know, there were there were some early modern Protestants, Francis Junius, for example, who seemed to say Adam needed grace in the covenant of works, um, and uh, you know, history is history, <laughs> and I can disagree with Junius. <laughs> Uh, he's not the Bible. He's not our confessions. Um, so he's not, he, he's a guy. Um, I respect him. He said a lot of great things, but uh, I think a, a wider uh, tradition said, well, first off, Adam was able by nature. So the Irish articles, Usher's document, for example, said uh, 
by the strength of his nature, Adam could keep the law. Um, and then so when other uh, Protestants, Ursinus, for example, uh, equate the law and the covenant of works, uh, they're saying Adam didn't need grace to fulfill the covenant. Um, now, others are going to say, are going to be quick to run in and say, lots of Protestants said the covenant of works was gracious. Um, a lot of them said God was gracious to make the covenant, which is a, now, because of Bart and other figures floating about today that are very controversial, that want to insist on grace for Adam, I think that's unwise to say it that way. I, I, you know, in the book I've written, I have, um, beleaguered the point that God was kind, that God was loving, um, that God was generous to make a covenant with Adam and said, I think given the way terms bounce, we just shouldn't use the word grace. Um, but their point nonetheless was, uh, even when they used this, God was gracious to make the covenant, but that's not the same as Adam needed grace to fulfill the terms of the covenant. Uh, you know, he didn't. So even Herman Bovink, right? You've mentioned him. Said, uh, without the assistance of supernatural grace, Adam could uh, keep. Could I think that's volume two, page two fifty four, or something like that? I was just looking at it earlier today. Um, that's how I knew that. <laughs> um, so he he denies it outright, uh, and I think that that's where we should land. Adam had an integrity of nature, uh, whereby he could keep the law, and even if. Uh, the reward was that was promised to him in the covenant was above and beyond uh, what you know our works before God could truly warrant. Um, well, once God made the covenant, uh, it wasn't, um, and that is different. Uh, so some people revolving in different ways. Uh, there's a passage where he perhaps suggests that the covenant of works was the reformed equivalent of the donum superadditum. Um, I don't think that's the, the best way uh, to take that. Um, and regardless of what Bobbing said, I don't think that's the way to understand it because the donum was elevating human nature so that they could perform a work that merited, uh, you know, truly and inherently uh, something before God. It was elevating human nature to perform a supernatural merit. Uh, and what the covenant of works is doing is saying that on the basis of how God made us, on the basis of our nature and what we could do in, in God's constitution of our um, human fabric, well, on that basis, he promised a, a, us a reward if we did the thing that we were supposed to do anyway. So that's not a, it's not an ontological change it's something he promised. Uh, and we see promises throughout the Bible. Uh, I do think there's certainly a metaphysic in Scripture, but um, I, I think that I want to be more circumscribed about things like the Donum Superadditum, ontologically speaking. So I think we can talk about a covenantal merit. Uh, and, and Protestants were pretty happy with that category. Um, there seems to be a debate about uh, merit for Adam, but then not merit for sinners. Uh, people seem to be happy that we can obtain rewards as sinners after we're justified at, at the end of things, but Adam couldn't have done that, which I think reverses a lot of stuff. Um, but I, I think that that's kind of where to land the plane for now, at yeah. least, is insisting on Adam's integrity by creation, 
uh, that God would have granted a reward on the basis of the covenant, uh, and then the fall disrupted that and the principles involved. Okay, that's that's very helpful. So thank you for taking the slight detour on that. I do want to also, and this may not be integral uh, to the book overall, but you talk about intellectualism and voluntarism a little bit. Uh, what does that have to do with the covenant works? Why is that relevant um, to understand how that's functioning? I I do think that the those, so I guess to define the categories first, um, voluntarism is kind of a philosophical paradigm uh, where the will takes priority over the intellect. Now, that also seems a bit ethereal um, and not very concrete. What what it means, uh, more practically speaking, is that decisions aren't grounded in something deeper. There's not necessarily a reason. So when it comes to God, uh, if we think something like the Ten Commandments, for example, um, if God were a we're operating on the voluntarist understanding. He just picked 10 rules. There's not an undergirding reason for those 10 commandments, um, but it's just something he made up. He, uh, he willed it. It was arbitrary. Uh, and so the voluntarist um, paradigm thinks that there's not, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm generalizing too much, and I'm aware of that, but I, I hope that the generalization helps the people who don't know kind of what the, the paradigm is. So scholars don't come back at me and say, oh, that was terrible. Um, you know, it, it's, it's not grounded in something deeper than itself. It's a, it's a raw choice um, without a reason. Now, intellectualism kind of reverses that. Choices are grounded in the intellect, uh, namely in a, in a reason. And I, I'm not saying reason. I'm saying a reason. Uh, it's grounded in the way things should be. Uh, so if you think about something like a mirror, uh, if, if our mirrors were voluntarist, they, you know, you might look at it and, and a pink elephant was looking back. That's a voluntarist mirror. It just chose to show you a pink elephant, even though, you know, I'm looking at you and you don't look anything like a pink elephant, Jordan. Um, on the other hand, an, an intellectualist mirror, you know, would show you something that looks like you. There's a reason for why it's reflecting what it's reflecting. Um, and, and so in, in, a, in an intellectualist understanding of the Ten Commandments again, well, each of those commandments has a reason. It's grounded specifically in God's own character. Uh, God is truth, and so we don't lie. God is life, and so we don't murder. Uh, God is faithful, so we don't commit adultery. You get the point. There, there's a, a nature undergirding it. So that's that's what these th- these paradigms are. When it comes to the covenant of works, uh, I think this is one of the places where you see differences. I mean, they're not they're not substantive differences, but guys who held to different paradigms, philosophically speaking, constructed it a little bit differently. Um, Usher, I've argued, was an intellectualist. So uh, the covenant of works was grounded in nature, uh, and the law was grounded in God, uh, his character, at least. And so uh, I do think that um, one of the things that this urges us to do, and one of the reasons why I included this aspect in the book, was to remind us that maybe we should tie down our formulations with some consistency, uh, I think that there 
are modern expressions of the covenant of works and the covenant of grace for, for that matter, but we're talking about the covenant of works that kind of bounce back and forth between intellectualist and voluntarist ideas, principles. Um, and, and one of the things that I might suggest is, well, you should, you should at least know where you're coming from and kind of stick with it. Not just on, on this issue, but on a, on a host of them. Because when we, we start to say things that don't line up with each other and, and we're all guilty of that or, or that, aren't consistent with a within a paradigm, well, that's when these things start to get confusing. And that's that's when we more easily disagree with each other because uh, we actually haven't tied everything down to something, you know, all the all the way down to the bottom, right? And so I happen to be with Usher. Um, I mean, I, I think I thought through this as I wrote the book rather than I was an intellectualist and... And then, you know, found Usher, who was also an intellectualist. I think just as I, as I explored these ideas, this was the best way to go. Um, the Covenant of Works then does genuinely reflect something about God. Uh, it reflects his character in that it's based on the law. Um, it also reflects his, uh, not, not just his, um, his righteousness, but also his loving kindness, because it did offer this reward um, that he didn't have to offer. Um, and so I think in that regard that it's a, a helpful way to parse this out. Now, um, I, I think that one of the reasons why this is helpful is today more widely than just kind of the covenant is because probably the modern conception of God is voluntarist. God is a, a whimsical, you know, being in the sky who decides to tell us to do something or other. Uh, and we're just supposed to do it to make him happy. Um, and, and I want to say, now that, that even in itself is a character of the voluntarist position, uh, and I realize that, uh, maybe not of kind of Greek mythology, the gods there, and the voluntarism that they used, but um, all the same, I think that's the, the conception that the outside world thinks Christians hold. And one of the things that I think intellectualism helps us recover, is that um, God made the world in a certain way, to be a certain way, to function a certain way, and uh, in as much as creatures are able to reflect him and his goodness. And that's one of the reasons why we're obligated to, you know, to, to live as faithfully as we can uh, to the things God has told us to do. Not because he made it up as arbitrary rules, but because he made us to bear his image. We're supposed to reflect him at the creaturely level into the world. And when we go against the, you know, his commands and the natural law, well, we're actually rebelling against what it means to be human. Uh, because to be human is to be a bearer of the divine image. Um, and so I think that some of these ideas help us tie down why we hold to the ethics we do, um, why they are more than, not less than, certainly not less than, so I'm not dismissing this, but more than just the Bible told us. The Bible does tell us, and we should listen to the Bible, but um, it, it is, what the Bible tells us is also grounded uh, in something further than just, you know, coming up with something. Um, so I think that that's one of the reasons why thinking through some of these paradigms, 
the, the underpinnings of why people formulated their covenant theology the way they did is a helpful thing. It's uh, in particular to the covenant of works. It helps us recover an understanding of nature and what nature is supposed to be and how we can apply it uh, to today, not just to understand more precisely why early modern theologians said what they said, but to think for the church in our own time. Now, naturally, I am interested to know, were there any Reformed thinkers who were more voluntarist in their approach to this? Yeah, in in some respects, at least. So, uh, William Perkins, for example, uh, who was a, a significant uh, source for Usher. So, um, in his manuscripts, Usher named Robert Rollick and William Perkins as his two foremost influences, so to speak. Read everything they wrote, he said. Uh, so, and and I I learned from William Perkins. So this isn't like a, a bash William Perkins moment, but he he was a big name, and he on the Ten Commandments. Uh, if I remember the passage correctly, I mean he essentially says God can command what he wants, even making it righteous to hate God. Um, now that's a that's an extreme voluntarism, and it, and it shouldn't surprise us actually that Perkins held to that if we if we get the rest of his theology. Um, and so there are some that were more voluntarist. I think that's an example, and that that is quoted in the book. Uh, if people don't believe me on this podcast, uh, I've got the source quoted and and explained uh, in one of the chapters there in the Usher book. So. There was, a, I think, there were a lot who were mixed uh, at at the same time, and so uh, yeah, there there was an eclecticism in the tradition, and I think that's one of the interesting things about this is that that we can take away too today is there was a core uh, teaching in this doctrine. So you know, Usher and Perkins are both holding to um, a notion of the covenant of works. Now they are very different um, on a number of levels. Uh, and I spell that out more in the book. Um, but even when it comes to the law, um, they're disagreeing. And yet they both believe that the law teaches this uh, requirement of righteousness to earn earn life. And so I, I think that we could perhaps learn from sharing the common tenets of doctrine um, disagreeing with how to formulate them in its in their specifics, but having that conversation without putting the worst label on one another uh, as we as we work through that, you know, we we have a confessional center, so to speak, and and we hold to that, and and then we have conversations about the more specific details of these things. That's good. So. We don't have time to cover everything in your book, but you've got several chapters like, you know, how does covenant works inform these different things? I am probably personally most interested in thinking about how it informs Christology. So maybe you just walk me through uh, covenant works, what the, how that's functioning for that doctrine. Yeah, absolutely. I think that was one of the two most interesting chapters to, to write uh, in, in how it informs it. So, for Usher, at least, the, the argument that I was making there was the covenant of works was so pivotal to how he understood humanity and human destiny that it essentially was the, the paradigm to understand Christ's work. 
So the the biblical second Adam theme uh, was critical uh, in Usher's understanding for uh, for um, Usher. Christ came to uh, render satisfaction, and what he means by that is all of our obligations before God. And because of the covenant of works, Usher said we have two uh, two um, debts before the Lord. We have a principal debt, which is perfect obedience. And then because of sin, violating the covenant of works, we have a debt of penalty. So a, a principal and a penalty debt uh, for, the, for the preachers who like alliteration out there, right? Um, and the, the penalty debt is... You know, death and and the curse of hell, uh, bearing God's wrath uh, forever because we've sinned. Now, Usher said that Christ came as the second Adam to render satisfaction to both of our debts that have accrued to us because of the covenant of works. And so, because of his act of obedience, uh, Christ's you know perfect righteousness is imputed to us uh, to fulfill that principal debt and his passive obedience, his suffering throughout his whole life, culminating in the cross, uh, is, is imputed to it. Now, not that these are totally distinct in, in God's act of imputation, but for the sake of clarity, to, to remove that penalty debt uh, that we needed to satisfy as well. And so uh, Christ's work, so not, not Christology in the terms of understanding his person, but understanding his work was primarily informed for Usher by the covenant of, of works. Um, I think there's something that we can recover from that. I think that this notion of satisfaction uh, is, is an important one. And Richard Muller has made the argument, you know, essentially that atonement language isn't the early modern way of, of speaking of Christ's work. Satisfaction is. And I think that that has a lot of traction not only historically, but also practically for the church. Um, we come back to the, you know, modern misconceptions. So, you know, people have said things like the penal substitutionary atonement is divine child abuse. You know, he, God took out his, you know, God was just angry. And so he took out his, you know, his his anger on somebody else. And why why would we worship such a, you know, impassioned God who's just angry all the time. And when we come to this, you know, notion of Christ rendering satisfaction, what we understand is that it's not that God had to uh, expend his emotions, but, you know, you owed something. We all owed something to God, um, a twofold something, uh, obedience and death because we're sinners. And, you know, just like we don't think, oh, it's unfair if our grandmother paid our speeding ticket when she renders satisfaction to our debts. Well, it's not the emotional outburst kind of thing when Christ renders satisfaction for our debts. It's he's paying what was just uh, and doing it on our behalf. And and all of that comes from so um I guess to sort of insert the historical aspect into modern theology, Oliver Crisp wrote a really helpful, interesting book on models of the atonement, uh, essentially. Uh, and I, th I thought that was actually one of the clearest, helpful explanations of various models of the atonement that are out there. So I'm not, you know, leading up just to lambast the book 
even even for my own position, which is penal substitution, uh, you know, he asks the right questions to poke at it to help us clarify. He essentially gives you the things to he sets you up to to respond. And and if you have the answer, well, then you can clarify it. And he lands close to penal substitution, um, but kind of rejects it a little bit. And I think this category of the creation covenant is actually what would bring it together um, in, a, in a more sort of lined up way. I think this is one of the reasons why he finds a little bit of dissatisfaction with imputation, with other other aspects of a kind of popularized version of penal substitution is because unlike the early modern versions, it's not grounded in the covenant of works. <laughs> Very good. Now I do want to give you before we close, I mean, this has been a lot of fun. Obviously you should go read the book because there's a lot of great information available in it here, but I want to hear a little bit um, about you, how you view, I mean, the relationship between the pastor and the scholar. So, we love to promote people who are doing, trying to do both of these things at a high level, recovering the, the, the sort of the older vision where there's serious theological education in the church and not just at the academy. Uh, we think the center of, the, of gravity should be the local church. So maybe just give me a little bit of picture on your view of how you should think pastors should spend their time, how they should think about the discipline of scholarship and what that looks like for them in their, in their ministry. When they have urgent needs, they have hospital visits, they have people calling them and texting them all the time about random stuff. Like how do they prioritize their time and think I need to devote time to thinking about James Usher? I mean, what does that look like? Yeah. I feel the tension, you know, frequently on the kind of pastor scholar label uh, and I have, in, in, in one sense, bit the bullet and really tried to take on both. Um, some guys do it well. Some guys, you know, I mean, I, I've heard that, you know, I, I don't think that writing even good books is necessarily the same thing as being a pastor scholar. Um, you know, there's devotional and popular level literature that is wonderful, and I'm not trying to diminish or, you know, put a negative spotlight on that at all. But um, that's not necessarily constructive uh, scholarly work uh, or investigation. Um, it's encouraging, it's good, but different. Um, for whatever reason, God has laid it on my heart to pursue both. Uh, and why? why does doing this sort of thing help? Why does it help me? Why, do, why would it help others? Why does kind of picking up some of these projects that I have coming out, why would it help the church? I, I think one of the things, just on the front end, it, it, to go back to kind of the philosophical paradigms, which is I'm not urging pastors to go, you know, d delve into lots of philosophy and that kind of, I mean, as you have time and interest, fine, that's, that's wonderful. But I do think that having a consistent understanding of our doctrine is a helpful thing. Here's, here's one of the reasons why. Um, you know, I, I try to keep track of what I've said to my congregation over the years. Uh, and I really have a fear of giving them mixed messages, uh, of, you know, telling them 
things that conflict, you know, over time. Uh, and I think that if pastors give time and energy to having a really systematic understanding of doctrine, of knowing the basic, don't don't just read a text and draw a straight line to the first application you can you can make. I understand that impulse. I understand the temptation, and I understand doing it when you run out of time. Um, I I also think you do better for your people if you run it through the grid of, you know, biblical and systematic theology, you know, what, what, not only what have I said to them in the past, but what might I say to them in the future? So as to frame our preaching, our counseling, you know, in a way that should be a lined up message from the first moment you're with your people to the last. We're all, you know, we all fall short. I get that. You know, uh, that's not my my big thing. But my big thing is, don't just say the first thing that pops into mind. Run it through a deeper grid. Uh, and investigating these really deep thinkers like Usher, who had a really joined up, integrated understanding of doctrine, helps us do that. So I've got a... Um, a volume of translations of Usher's never-before-published manuscripts, actually, um, coming out with Westminster Press, hopefully early in 2023. Um, certainly, I, Well, I, I think certainly by the end of 2023. Um, it's done. We're just waiting on proofs. Uh, and, you know, I think those documents are not long. Now there's a, a, a handful of documents in that volume. Uh, but if you read one of them, it's probably about the length of four blog posts, um, which isn't overly long, but it gives you a really joined up understanding of doctrine and reflecting on how he's done that at a deep level, I think helps and encourages us to do the same. Um, and we come back to, that's not for the sake of being intellectual and super smart. It's for the sake of our people because we don't want to tell them to turn left one day and then tell them to turn right the next. We want to we want to keep pointing the same direction over time. And if we're we're left to our cultural preferences, if we're left to our reactions to what's happening in the world around us, even if we're left to our reactions, not not grounded understanding of biblical texts, but reactions to biblical texts, the what does this mean to you kind of Bible study approach, uh, then we're doing dis disservice to the people of God who are trusting us to feed them. And so I think that that is one of the reasons why this sort of uh, more rigorous study at, at whatever level, you know, you can manage to do it. Um, and I, I don't want to put, you know, if you can't write a book as a pastor, who cares? You know, don't feel bad. Um, that's that's not what God has called you to do. It doesn't matter. We probably need fewer people writing books. <laughs> and people say that every time they read one of mine, right? Um, so it's not that, but it's just whatever level God has given you capacity to think hard about preparing not only this week's meal, but every week's meal <laughs> for the sheep in in God's fold that are under your care, uh, then I think that that is worth it. Um, I actually think I just want to leave it there. (laughs) 
Yeah, no, that's good. So that's a good word and good encouragement. So I want to thank you for talking with us about this on the podcast and encourage everybody who's been listening. Go check out Harrison's work. Keep up with it. Obviously, he's got lots of material coming out. I'll try to remind you guys of it whenever it comes, and we'll probably have him back on to chat about all these things. So thanks, Harrison, for the fun. This has been awesome. And for all who've been listening, you know this is the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon.